0: Kids are awesome. Happy Father's Day to all of you fathers. It's a blessing to spend my first Father's Day as a father with my family. Pretty, pretty great. This morning, we get to continue in our study that we started uh, last week. It's our last study in, in the prophets, and it's our last study in the Old Testament. And we're studying the story of Elijah. So last week, just to give you a really quick recap, uh, we looked first at where Elijah falls kind of in the timeline of the story. And here's that timeline that I showed you last week, just to give you kind of a quick visual reminder of where we are in this story. Elijah circled there in red, and the highlighted um, names are, are other books or, or people that we have studied um, so far in our time in the prophets and in the time of the exile. So it's, it's been a several hundred year backwards in the story from where we've been in the last few months, and it's taken us back to the book of Kings. We just finished Nehemiah, and we're going all the way back to the book of Kings. So we went through 1 Kings chapter 17 last week. 1 Kings 17 is where Elijah was first introduced, uh, and he just kind of shows up suddenly out of nowhere, and it's during the time of the king of King Ahab of Israel. We saw in the end of chapter 16 of 1 Kings, how Ahab is just this really bad king. In fact, it says he was worse than all of his predecessors before him, which is really saying something, because there were some bad kings before him, and he's even worse than all of them. He did evil things. He turned his back on Yahweh. He chose to instead worship the popular gods of his neighbors and of his wife, Jezebel, and he built, he built this whole temple to Baal, who is this storm god. He's the god of rain and thunder and lightning and, and fire. And, and he's associated with power and prosperity and, and controlling the weather. And he also set up an Asherah pole for, for the goddess of fertility. And, and it was also under Ahab's watch that the city of Jericho got rebuilt. And we looked at why that was a bad thing. And these are all terrible things. So when Elijah shows up, it's to confront this really bad king and, and his evil ways. And the confrontation starts with Elijah announcing to Ahab that there's going to be a drought. There's going to be no rain and no dew for years until Elijah commands it to be, uh, that curse to be lifted. Um, and it's going to, going to last for years until the rain comes back, which also means, you know, if there's no water, there's also no food. So it's also basically announcing a famine. And it's only going to come back by Elijah's command. So in, in making this proclamation, Elijah, Yahweh is my God, is what his name means. Yahweh is my God is asserting Yahweh's, powerful over, his, Yahweh's power over creation. And he's defying and humiliating this god Baal that Ahab's been worshiping, who's supposed to have all of this power over rain and storms. So this drought... It's, it's a very, it serves a specific purpose, not just to, to punish Israel, but to demonstrate Yahweh's authority and to expose Baal's, Baal worship as just empty and, and pointless. So in the meantime, that doesn't make Elijah a very popular guy, especially with Ahab. So God tells Elijah to run away from Ahab. He sends him to live by a wadi, which is a seasonal brook. You might have brook in your translation. Um, where he has water here, and he's he's fed daily by ravens, by birds. And then after the wadi dries up, he goes and lives with this really poor widow and her son, and, and God miraculously provides food for them, not in large amounts, just barely enough to survive on a daily basis. She gets just enough flour and just enough oil in her flower pot and, and jar of, of oil to provide just enough food to get by on a daily basis. And this should remind us of how God provided manna to the Israelites on a daily basis in the wilderness. And it was a great reminder of God's provision and to have faith in God's provision. But that that provision and having what we need doesn't always mean being comfortable or even having any extra. Depending on the season of life, you know, we may just have enough to get by one day at a time. And that is one way in which God may test our faith at times and teach us the value in in relying on him. It's also cool to see the character of God in chapter 17. It's the way that he shows this very personal and intimate care for Elijah and, and the widow and her son, even raising her son back from the dead when he died. And in doing that, Yahweh demonstrated power, not only over creation and, and the weather, uh, the forces of nature, but over death itself. So that's a very powerful foreshadowing of his ultimate defeat of death through Christ. No other prophet had had done this before, and except for Elisha, no one did it again until Jesus. Uh, but it's also cool, too, just to see this compassion of God and, and uh, in the context of this story especially, it, prior to and in contrast to the, the fiery cosmic uh, vengeance, which we'll see some of today. God's already caused this, this drought and famine and, and defiance to Baal. And that, that theme of Yahweh confronting Baal is going to continue in chapter 18. We've just kind of only gotten started with this confrontation. So we're, that's where we're going to pick up today is in 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm excited for this chapter because this, just this chapter is one of the most epic and powerful stories of God confronting and overcoming evil. And keep in mind as we go through this story today that the reputation of Baal, this god, was at that time quite grand. He was seen, again, as the giver of prosperity and, and power, and this is very similar I'm going to be drawing lots of analogies, as I did last week, to the story of of Moses and the Israelites in Egypt. Um, It's very similar to how the gods in Egypt were viewed um, by the Egyptians in the time of Moses, and, and how Yahweh, through the Exodus story, methodically prevailed over the gods of Egypt, first with the plagues, and then eventually by destroying the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea parting of the Red Sea, and then the collapsing in of the sea on the Egyptian army, that's one of the most climactic encounters in the Old Testament. It's part of the Israelite origin story, and the Israelites were supposed to remember that day forever, because that was when Yahweh proved he was more powerful than any other deity, whether those deities would be real or imagined, it doesn't matter. He is the one true Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and he showed them that on that day but they, they forgot, as we've seen throughout the, the time of the prophets in exile. But this story that we're about to enter into is really very similar in purpose and in message to the, the Red Sea story. And I would say it's pretty, pretty up there with how just epic and, and climactic it is. So now that I've hyped it all up, <laughs> uh, let's start reading in verse 1. It says, later on, so this is after he's been with the, with the widow for a while, Later on, in the third year of the drought, Yahweh said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in Samaria. Remember, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. So it's been three years without rain, and it's resulted in this very severe famine. The the land, the people, and and Ahab, the king himself, are now in this weakened state. Three years without rain is pretty devastating, and it's all because of Elijah. So again, he is not a popular guy, not just with Ahab, but really probably in society at large. He's public enemy number one at this point. He's, I think, at the top of Israel's most wanted list. And of course, we know really this is through God's power, and it's part of God's judgment and and revelation that this famine is happening. But Elijah is still the person who's given credit as the intercessor. He's the human being who's responsible for facilitating God's will here. Remember, God chooses to use humans, to involve humans, and lets them participate in his work and even in his decision-making process. He has conversations with people. And in the New Testament, James acknowledges this. When he makes a reference to Elijah towards the end of his book in chapter 5, James uses Elijah as an illustration of the power of prayer. Uh, So James chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 say, Elijah was a human being, as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. And that's pretty cool. You know, yes, Elijah was a prophet, and he was kind of a unique prophet, but he was, all, he was a human being as we are, and he served the same powerful God that we serve today. And of course, the way that God uses us is very different, should be very different from the way he used Elijah, especially in the story today, but we'll, we'll get into that more later on. Um, but it's still, you know, he's the same God today that he was then, and it's interesting to note, though, that even though Elijah is going to be the one to go and announce it to everyone else, it is Yahweh who, the word of Yahweh comes to Elijah and says, okay, it's time for this drought to end, so God is being described here as the one who actually initiates the, the, the bringing of relief to the land and allowing it to rain again. Let's keep reading and see how this plays out. In verse 3, Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a devoted follower of Yahweh. Once, when Jezebel had tried to kill all of Yahweh's prophets, Obadiah had hidden a hundred of them in two caves. He put 50 prophets in each cave and supplied them with food and water. Ahab said to Obadiah, We must check every spring and valley in the land to see if we can find enough grass to save at least some of my horses and mules. So they divided the land between them. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. As Obadiah was walking along, he suddenly saw Elijah coming toward him. Obadiah recognized him at once and bowed low to the ground before him. Is it really you, my lord Elijah, he asked. Yes, it is, Elijah replied. Now go and tell your master Elijah is here. This is so cool. I'm going to take a minute to kind of geek out about this this little interaction here. Um, So we get introduced to Obadiah, and remember, he's one of the prophets who has his own book. He's up on that timeline, um, and he kind of overlaps with Elijah there. It's a very short book. It's just one chapter. You can read it in one sitting pretty easily. The whole thing is just a prophecy about uh, or against the nation of Edom. And um, so, yeah, but we don't get much information about Obadiah in that book. It's just a prophecy against Edom. So here we get just a little glimpse into Obadiah's story, and it's it's so cool to see how his ministry is overlapping with Elijah's. And to kind of see them meet here, Uh, remember I mentioned there's a a crossover episode in this story. This is that crossover episode. Everyone loves a good crossover, right? And I just love how Obadiah is introduced here with these two defining attributes. First of all, he's in charge of the palace. That's pretty cool. But then secondly, he's a man who greatly fears Yahweh. The NLT says he was uh, very devoted to Yahweh, but the literal words are that he greatly fears Yahweh. So this this guy is awesome. I just we have to take a moment to appreciate him. Can you imagine being a prophet who fears Yahweh but also being in charge of the palace for the most wicked evil king in Israel's history and a king who has a wicked evil queen Jezebel besides. And in fact, we get this little side note that Jezebel had once tried to completely kill, slaughter, annihilate all of Yahweh's prophets. And Obadiah was able to secretly save a hundred of them by hiding them in caves and giving them enough food and water to survive. That little story is, is given here literally in parenthesis. <laughs> but that could be whole, made, made into a whole movie right there, I think. And I don't know how other than by the providence of God he was able to remain in his position in the palace and yet still remain devoted to Yahweh. He would have had to daily walk a line between being subservient and honoring to his king, Ahab, and even the queen, while also being honoring to Yahweh and therefore subversive when necessary. Would have been exhausting. But this guy is awesome. And right now he's on a mission from Ahab to find grass to feed the royal horses. that's how much Ahab values Obadiah. It's the two of them on this search. They probably have search parties with them, but Obadiah and Ahab are the two in charge of this search. They divide up the land between them. It's the king and his right-hand man looking desperately for just some grass on the parched earth so that they can save a few of their animals. And then suddenly, Obadiah just sees Elijah walking towards him. He just kind of comes out of nowhere and and approaches Obadiah. And Obadiah's reaction is to fall on his face. And Obadiah is not nobody. He's someone in a very powerful position, and yet he shows this profound deference to Elijah. Obadiah would be considered Elijah's superior politically and socially and just about every way, but he's subjecting himself to Elijah because he recognizes Elijah's significance spiritually. Not in Ahab's kingdom, but in God's kingdom. It shows where Obadiah's priorities really were. But that said, Obadiah was still freaked out (laughs) when he meets Elijah. Because Elijah, Ahab's worst enemy, appears out of nowhere to Obadiah and says, hey, go tell Ahab I'm here. And this is how he responds in verse 9. Oh, sir, Obadiah protested, what harm have I done to you that you are sending me to my death at the hands of Ahab? For I swear by Yahweh, your God, that the king has searched every nation and kingdom on earth from end to end to find you. And each time he was told, Elijah isn't here, King Ahab forced the king of that nation to swear the truth of his claim. Now you say, "'Go and tell your master Elijah is here. "'As soon as I leave you, the spirit of Yahweh will carry you away to who knows where. "'And when Ahab comes and cannot find you, he will kill me. "'Yet I have been a true servant of Yahweh all my life. "'Has no one told you, my lord, about the time when Jezebel was trying to kill Yahweh's prophets? "'I hid a hundred of them in two caves and supplied them with food and water. "'And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here?' Sir, if I do that, Ahab will certainly kill me. But Elijah said, I swear by Yahweh Almighty in whose presence I stand that I will present myself to Ahab this very day. I kind of feel sorry for Obadiah. He thinks he's being punished for some reason. He says, what did I ever do to you? Ahab's going to kill me. I wonder if his first thought might have been, you know, you're blowing my cover. I can't be seen with you. You're his worst enemy he feels the need to inform Elijah about how wanted of a man he is. He tells him how Ahab's been searching for him to the ends of the globe, he says, making people swear they haven't seen him. You get just this vivid image of a desperate King Ahab just kind of shaking people down in every city looking for Elijah and making them swear they haven't seen him. It's, it's kind of comical. Obadiah is not laughing. Because then Obadiah has this terrifying thought, which I think is great. He's afraid that if he does go and tell Ahab that Elijah is there, then in the meantime, the spirit of Yahweh is just going to whisk him away to who knows where. And that might seem kind of silly, but as we'll see later on, that, that fear isn't totally unfounded. Yahweh's spirit is known to whisk people away on occasion. And it happens to Elijah at least once, but he did get around that map quite a bit. I have the map. I'll put that up there again. See all those little blips on the map? So it, it could be, you know, he had a bit of a reputation for disappearing and showing up places. We don't really know for sure, but we know his his fear of Yahweh whisking him away it was possible. And he says again, Ahab's hey, going to kill me. And he also says, has no one... Told you what I did for those hundred prophets? Surely you you must have heard through the great vine of faithful Jews, the the few faithful who remain in Israel, that that I'm a hero, an underground hero. If you go, you tell me to go say to Ahab, Elijah is here, sir. If I do that, he'll kill me. He says it three times. Obadiah expresses just this terror that he's going to get killed, and insists he'll be a dead man if he does what Elijah asks him to do. But Elijah swears to him that he'll be there and that he'll talk to Ahab. He swears by Yahweh and uses this phrase again that he used once in chapter 17 when he was approaching Ahab. He says, I swear by Yahweh in whose presence I stand. That's a profound claim to make, that Elijah stands in the presence of Yahweh. I stand in God's presence, trust me. And Obadiah, despite his fear, does what Elijah says. And we've talked about that before, how true faith doesn't mean never being afraid to do what God tells you to do, but doing it anyway when you are afraid. And in this case, Obadiah does what Elijah says, trusts him, and trusts him as as a servant of God. And so we'll read on in verse 16. It says, Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So it is really you, you troublemaker of Israel. I've made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of Yahweh and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported. By Jezebel. You just gotta love the boldness of Elijah here. So, first of all, notice that Elijah doesn't go to Ahab this time to meet with him. He basically summons Ahab, the king of Israel, to him. So, it's already kind of a power move, making Ahab come to him. And then when Ahab comes up to him, probably thinking, God, there is no way this dude would really have the nerve right now, but I've gotta see if it's really him. And then it's, it's really him, Elijah, standing right there. And Ahab calls Elijah the troublemaker of Israel, to which Elijah doesn't even hesitate. He, says, he turns it right around on Ahab says, it's not my fault, it's your fault. And then he actually gives Ahab a command. He tells Ahab to summon all the people of Israel to Mount Carmel. With all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and he totally throws Jezebel under the bus too, he's making sure to point out that all those prophets are being supported by Jezebel. So Elijah is speaking to Ahab with authority that goes beyond Ahab's authority as Israel's king, with the authority of Yahweh. And Ahab, he's got to just recognize this at this point, because rather than just having Elijah arrested at this point or killed on the spot for his insolence, you know, he actually does exactly. What Elijah says. Uh, And I have the map up here still, so you can see where Mount Carmel is in relation to everything else. I have a circle, uh, or no, an arrow, a red arrow pointing to Mount Carmel there. And those two orangey stars are in the north, that's Samaria, and in the south, that's Jerusalem, just to give you a a frame of reference to where everything is. Mount Carmel is a little bit to the the northwest, and it's near um, the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And also there's the Kishon River Valley to the east. I think I have that in purple there. That's, the, that's a river that's kind of in the river valley right to the east, northeast of uh, Mount Carmel. That's where he's telling Ahab to summon all the people onto this, this mountain and to bring all those prophets along with you. So in verse 20, Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? (laughs) I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, by the way, because I just really like the way they word some of these things. Hobbling between two opinions. If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent, (laughs) speechless. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of Yahweh who is left. Not true, by the way. That'll come up later, but um, that's the way he feels at the moment. And and at that in that moment, he's the only prophet standing there. So I'm the only prophet of Yahweh who's left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces, lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. So Elijah proposes this contest, basically, between him and the prophets of Baal. It's really a contest between Yahweh and Baal to show which God is the true God and which is worth following. And each side is going to get a bull of their own to sacrifice on an altar, but their God has to provide the fire for the offering and thereby prove themselves to be the true God. And the people say, okay, that sounds good. Okay, that's fine. Let's do that. They agree to these terms. And then the contest Begins in verse 25, says, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it, and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So he even gives them the advantage of choosing whichever bull they want to use for the sacrifice, and lets them go first, because there's more of them. So verse 26, They prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. And they danced, hobbling, there's that word again, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or he's relieving himself. Maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be awakened. (laughs) You just got to love Elijah's personality here. He's trash-talking his competition. He's mocking them, making fun of them. Not Not just them, but Baal himself. It's a very sarcastic tone here, and he's intentionally mocking their idolatry by characterizing their God as being limited by needing sleep or by not being physically present, needing to relieve himself. Of course, Elijah knows Yahweh is not limited by any of those things. And then the funny thing is, really, I guess it's more of a sad thing, is that Elijah's mockery doesn't discourage them, doesn't even make them angry, it just makes them try harder. Verse 28 says, They shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until their blood gushed out over themselves. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice But still, there was no sound, no reply, no response. So after all this, you know, nobody could ever say that the prophets of Baal didn't try their hardest. It's not that they didn't try hard enough. They were at it all morning long for hours and hours, and when nothing happened, they just tried harder. They did everything they could possibly do to demonstrate how uh, serious they were, how devoted they were to this god Baal, and to making him look good, to making him the victor in this this contest. And note that this this practice this is kind of a little side note, but this cutting of oneself to show piety or to awaken the dead. One theory is that they thought maybe Baal had actually died because of this drought and everything, and they were calling on the other gods to to wake him up, and they were in solidarity, suffering alongside him, and. That's just a theory, but um, it was a common practice either way to to cut yourself in non-Israelite cultures, and unfortunately, we know the Israelites did adopt this along with you know, many of the other elements of idolatry. It's not just that that cutting yourself is a bad idea; it's kind of a no-brainer. But it was specifically outlawed for the is for the Israelites, um, along with other similar pagan practices that had a specific symbolism attached to it, like cutting their hair in specific ways and getting tattoos as, as religious rituals meant to have spiritual significance. And it comes up in a, a couple of places. Um, in Deuteronomy, once and twice in Leviticus, uh, this, this concept. But I really like how it's worded in Deuteronomy 14.1. God says to the people, you are children of Yahweh your God. Therefore, you must not gash yourself and you must not make your forehead bald to the dead. He's saying, you're my children. Don't do those other things that those other gods demand of you. And, and don't let your appearance indicate that you worship or appeal to any other gods or spirits other than me. So that's another thing. They would do it to appeal to their dead ancestors and dead family members. They're specifically forbidden from doing that. So, but back to our, our showdown here, this prophet showdown. There's these hundreds of prophets that have been at this appealing to Baal for hours and hours. They're delirious and or ecstatic at this point, and Elijah is going to end up being the one to have to just call it. Did you notice, by the way, that it mentions in verse 29, they've now gotten to the time of the afternoon sacrifice, or it might say in your translation, the evening sacrifice, or the sacrifice of the oblation. um, This is the the second of two daily sacrifices that were prescribed to the Israelites. So it's actually going to be pretty good timing for Elijah to step up to the plate. And I'm sure he was well aware of that when he speaks up in verse 30. Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel. And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of Yahweh. And he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. All right, so again, Elijah is saying, you know, enough is enough. He speaks to the people. Remember, all the pe- it's not just the prophets up here. All the people of Israel had been summoned to this mountain. So there are all these spectators who've witnessed the failure of all those prophets of Baal. And Elijah saying to them, it's my turn now. And they've been all there all day, from morning to mid-afternoon, and and they've seen nothing happen so far, other than people just dancing around like idiots. So I'm guessing they were happy to kind of move on to the next event. It says the people crowded around him. I'm just picturing this mob of of eager people, just kind of bored with the prophets of Baal, ready to see what Elijah's going to do. And right away, what Elijah does is significant. Because first of all, He's using the altar of Yahweh, which had been torn down previously, likely because of Jezebel and her influence. He has to repair it first. And he does so using 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's reminding them as he does this of their heritage, their story of how Yahweh chose Jacob, named him Israel, and created a whole nation from his 12 sons. This nation that was supposed to be a nation of priests for Yahweh representing him and bringing his blessing to the whole world. So these 12 stones, they were a physical, visual reminder of their history and how far they've strayed from their calling as a people. So this rebuilding of the the altar, it's a very powerful and and symbolic moment. He's reclaimed it. He's repaired it in the name of Yahweh. And in the very act of doing so, he's called out the people of Israel for abandoning Yahweh. And I, I think... I often miss that anyway, when reading the story, because I'm, I'm excited about what happens next. Because immediately following that altar repair, things start to get weird in just wonderful Elijah fashion. In verse 32, it says, he not only rebuilds the altar, now he builds this four-gallon trench around it. The, that phrase used to describe the size of this moat. It's literally two seahs of seed, So that's about 12 liters or three or four gallons. That's, just, that's not normal. A trench around an altar is not part of the prescribed sacrificial ritual. So where is he going with this? We find out in verse 33. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. So he has them just drench this entire setup with water three times. And so much water that the trench fills up around it. They must have just thought he was out of his mind. But they, they did it anyway, and with this soaking wet altar, now there's going to be no question if Elijah was successful. There's no way now that he could be using sleight of hand or trickery or fraudulent Methods to to kind of fake his way out of this. Now, I'm sure everyone was just watching this with with bated breath. Some were maybe chuckling because they thought he was crazy. Maybe others started to get nervous about what was what's about to happen now. And maybe some were just bored at this point. Because, but I'm I'm sure there were all, there was a lot of suspense, and they waited to see what Elijah would do. Verse 36 says, "At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet." went up to the altar and prayed. "O oh Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O oh Yahweh, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O oh Yahweh, are God and you have brought them back to yourself. So it's a, a stark contrast to the the frenzied, ecstatic, frenzied mayhem of uh, Baal's prophets. Just a simple, straightforward prayer. And he appeals to God's covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He appeals to the ultimate purpose of people knowing that Yahweh is God. It's not just for his own gratification. It's so that the people know. It's a simple prayer, but there's there's no you know ritual or conjuring procedure. He just prays but it's powerful. God responds immediately. Immediately, the fire of Yahweh flashed down from heaven and burned up. The young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust even licked up all the water in the trench. I should have the fire slide back up there. Just whoosh, Yahweh's fire just licks it all up. The bull, the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and the water—it just, it's all consuming and instant. Just within seconds, everyone present there had convincing proof that Yahweh is God. And this, along with the continuing story, concludes it very um, conclusively demonstrates that Yahweh, not Baal, has power over fire, water, and the weather. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, Oh, Yahweh, he is God. Yes, Yahweh is God. They acknowledge, yep, there's a clear winner in this contest. And the people are responding to acknowledge that. But Elijah's not quite done yet. We get to verse 40. Then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley. Remember, that's that river going along the mountain. So they go down into the valley and kill them there. So Elijah executes judgment on these false prophets. And that's according to the law that was given in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Death was the penalty for false prophecy and for inciting others to embrace idolatry. And it's rather a gruesome picture. It is. but. They really brought it on themselves, and beyond that, it's kind of it's the necessary climax in this conflict, just like the waters of the Red Sea collapsing in on the Egyptian army, who would have otherwise never stopped pursuing Israel, and it asserts finally Yahweh's victory over Baal. That was a just a very awesome climactic moment. But in the meantime, remember we still don't have any rain. There's no water. Um, so that's then. other than, you know, by the way, if you were wondering where they got the water to soak the altar and everything, I, w- I was kind of wondering that. And then looking at the map is kind of helpful because you realize, oh, they're actually right near the sea and salt water. They would have not run out. The Mediterranean Sea didn't dry up, um, but that's not drinking water. So that wasn't helping any of the crops or animals. So And they also had a river right there, which they might have gotten water from the river. And um, that probably wasn't totally dry, but still wasn't enough to, you know, actually provide grass for everything. So they're at a water source where they were. So, that map was kind of helpful in realizing that um, I lost my place, um oh, so yeah, we don't have any rain still. they still need more rain, uh, so that's gonna be kind of the next topic that the story is gonna address and apparently ahab has has been present through this whole thing too now, because Elijah turns to him in verse forty one says, "Go get something to eat and drink." for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. Elijah says, go, relax, you know, celebrate even, because this famine is about to end. At this point, there's not even a cloud on the horizon, as we'll see in a minute. So when he says, I hear a mighty rainstorm, uh, it's either because he has some kind of supernatural hearing, or it's just his way of saying, you know, I know that Yahweh is going to be sending some rain very soon. I actually couldn't find any, anyone else commenting or writing about that. So I just thought it was an interesting phrase. I hear a mighty rainstorm, even though there was nothing near yet. He goes climbs all the way back to the top of the mountain, and he prays. He has a servant with him. He says to his servant, verse 43, Go and look out toward the sea. Servant went and looked and returned to Elijah and said, I didn't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go and look. This poor servant has to go running back and forth saying, nope, still no clouds. Absolutely nothing on the horizon, Elijah. But, you know, if I were Elijah's servant, I would at this point not question him either. (laughs) After seeing what just happened, I would just do whatever he says. Uh, back and forth, though, back and forth, seven times, and finally, verse 44, the seventh time his servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. And then Elijah shouted, hurry to Ahab and tell him, climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. So, Elijah hears about this tiny, fluffy little cloud coming up over the horizon, and he says, go, 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 take your chariot home. Uh, Tell Ahab to take your chariot home as fast as you can, or you're going to get stopped by the rain. And then presumably the servant went with, with Ahab. And sure enough, in verse 45, as soon as the sky was black with clouds, a heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. So everyone is is just hightailing it home at this point. Ahab has a chariot, so they're racing home with their horses and chariots, but Elijah doesn't have a chariot, so he's going to be in trouble if he gets caught in this storm, especially up on a mountain, you can imagine. But this is Elijah we're talking about. So, of course, it wasn't a problem. Verse 46, Then Yahweh gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot, all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. Because why not? We end this just miraculous, epic chapter with one last supernatural cherry on top. Elijah just running with super speed, faster than all the king's horses and chariots. I just think that's that's awesome. Honestly, it seems to me like God was maybe having a little bit of fun that day. It had to have been a pretty satisfying day for For God or to be a follower of God, like Elijah or Obadiah, when he hears about all this, to finally have this moment of gratification or affirmation. And I think, this is just me, but I I think when God was writing this story and and deciding what to do, he had a little bit of fun with it. And I think that's one of the things about Elijah's stories. You kind of get a little bit of God's personality, his humor, almost like a cheekiness, if you will, if I can say that about God and just the way that he uses Elijah it's it's just so cool and satisfying but on the other hand it wasn't all fun and games this was a day of reckoning and whether it's with the prophets of Baal or with Pharaoh and the Egyptians we see that sometimes God uses a heavy hand to get his message across and to deliver his people to bring his people back to him it's because of the hardness of people's hearts his own people's hearts, that such dramatic conflicts had to take place. And in that sense, I don't think that God had much fun. I don't think he took any joy in having to prove himself over and over to his people or to keep drawing them back to him over and over again. No, this was was just part of this heartbreaking cycle of, of love and divorce between him and them it's because that cycle is prevalent throughout all of humanity and it's endless because all have sinned and don't live up to God's glory that he ultimately took all the consequences of humanity's rebellion on himself in the person of Jesus so that whoever believes in him can escape the death that we deserve and have eternal life in relationship with him that eternal life by the way is not just in the future that's starts the moment we trust in Christ, and it includes each day that we live for him on earth. And I know I just kind of took a hard left into New Testament theology all of a sudden, and I kind of did that last week too on you when I just jumped right to Matthew. Uh, and I don't want to go too far down the New Testament rabbit hole just yet, because so I do want to appreciate the story for what it is, and, and we'll continue the story Next week, uh, and like I said last week, part of the, the value or the application of the story is simply to reflect on who God is and who, how he's revealed himself in this story. This is a, a moment of revelation. and on, on the surface the surface, the chapter of the, this chapter of the story, chapter 18, is just really exciting and satisfying, right? Like the good guy wins against all odds, and God just shows up brilliantly and, and triumphs over evil. And that is one way the story should be perceived. That is part of what the story is. But if you reflect on it and and ponder it a bit more, and if you're completely honest with yourself, and as you face the reality of who God is, as with many other Old Testament stories, you realize that really you can see yourself on the other side of this conflict as well. Really, we're the ones who have betrayed God and pursued worthless idols and hardened our hearts, and yet God draws us back to him. And chap- this chapter of the story caused me to just kind of reflect on the power and the holiness and the jealousy of God and realize that I've done nothing to deserve a friendship with him, and yet he has mercy on me. He's bathed me in forgiveness through Christ. And he chooses to walk with me and fill me with his presence. So that I too, like Elijah, may boldly claim that I stand in the presence of Yahweh. Father, I know that I am not worthy to stand in your presence, let alone proclaim that I do to others, and yet that's how you've chosen to use your church. I thank you for the incredible gift of Christ for forgiveness and mercy through his sacrifice on the cross. For raising him from the dead and triumphing over sin and death for all people, for all time. And then giving us the gift of your spirit to fill us with your presence. The fullness of you filling each and every one of us as members of your church. Lord, I pray that you would empower us with with boldness, that you would reveal yourself to us in all of your power and holiness and that we would, out of response to your mercy, your seeking out us and, and saving us and drawing us to you and choosing us, that we would respond in a way that brings glory to you. It's worthy of us standing up for your name, that we can say, Yahweh is my God, and in his presence I stand. Let's not take that for granted. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you very much. I've been really enjoying studying Elijah. I hope you're enjoying it as well. We'll continue next week.